I really appreciated the lessons that were given last night and the lessons that have been advanced this morning. I, uh, I don't mean to single out any, but there's one that I really thought made a nice segue. In Steve's lesson, he brought out the, uh, the thought of being free and what would we really want to be free from. Think about that. First thing that came to my mind was responsibility. Eh. Dunce cap, go in the corner, boy. That's the wrong answer. Uh, but uh, that's what was there. And I thought about that. What would that be? You know, you can almost see butterflies and jelly beans in your brain melting down, and, and you're either dissolved into doing nothing, or you become violent, obsessed with any fleshly impulse that might come along without any regard for consequences because there's no responsibility there. I just can't help it. I just can't help it. A life without responsibility. And that's the title of our lesson. And I can't help but think that this really does fit with the idea of faith and works because that's the focus of the lesson. That's this is the inner material that was given to me. When I first saw the title, I wondered, how does this work? I don't understand that. I just can't help it, can I? But, uh, but I think you can see the sense of it. You know, in the... Um, In the word responsibility, did I get that right? Yeah. Responsibility. <laughs> we have the, uh, the the root of response, and this is this is the gnarly problem we get into. Where does response begin? How does it come about? Well, it comes about first of all with external stimulation. That's the only way we can possibly respond because we're not just spirit. We're not just uh, spirits living in a material world. We are body, soul, and spirit. We're, we're uh, a coexisting creation, an amalgamation of the image of God. And this is the way He's made us. And it does appear from all evidence that we can see that we respond to stimulation that comes through our senses. What would it be if, if the knowledge of Christ and Him crucified were a story? The greatest story ever told, but a story in the sense of just simply being a fable. Something that was drummed up out of God's imagination to satisfy our need so that we would have faith in it and that that would save our soul. Does that work? Did God so love the world that He told us the greatest story ever? No, it actually had to be carried out in flesh and blood. <clears throat> Jesus had to do the thing in order for God's love to be incorporated in an effective manner so that you and I might be able to profit, so that we could gain something good out of it. So here's a soul that perhaps has come to the conclusion that God's grace has saved me, and we can't discount God's grace but what are we talking about when we had the idea of, well, you know, I'm walking down the street and I'm just sort of blithely going along and then bang, hallelujah, Lord Almighty, my soul is saved. Well, where does that come from? Did it just come out of the blue? Did God just, he just touched me. That's what the song says, you know, he touched me. Really? Is that how that worked? You mean you didn't hear anything? You didn't meditate? You didn't study? 
there wasn't anything that interested you about the plan of salvation or the hope of everlasting life? Was the concept of heaven just completely out of your vocabulary and your mental uh, formula? No, it was. there was something there that somehow got contrived to produce an experience. But the sad thing about it is, is that there's a denial of responsibility. I didn't do anything. I didn't, it wasn't a matter of obeying God. It was just God touched me. God gave me life. Hallelujah. God loves me. And there are scriptures that sometimes we glom onto that seem to support the idea. You know, the, the apostle uh, Peter wrote about the writings of Paul, which those who are unlearned and unstable wrestle, as they do all the, also the other scriptures, to their own destruction. And uh, I think in the book of Romans, there are many, many such scriptures. Scriptures that we have to be very careful with. They're deep and they're very engaging. But we always have to remember the simple foundation. Just a simple passage. God so loved the world that He gave. He loved who? The world. Oh, just certain people in the world He loved. You know, the elect. No, He loved the world that He gave. So there's, there are many, many simple things that provide a foundation for the more difficult. I am, I am not a master of anything, but I do, I do recognize, and I think you do too, that we need to approach the book of Romans with, with care, remembering the simple things that, that are the foundation for our understanding. And we have scriptures like this that sometimes confound and confuse. This is in Romans, the seventh chapter, and uh, verse 18. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Oh, the flesh, bad boy. In the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, again in um, verse 3, what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Sinful flesh. What, do, what kind of a picture do we get just with those phrases there? In by flesh dwells no good thing. Sinful flesh. Or the idea of through one man's sin... Adam, sin came into the world. Original sin. Sinful flesh. In my flesh dwells no good thing. And pretty soon we have a concept that this flesh is just somehow an intrusion into our spiritual way of life and that it's really unworthy of anything. And it has to be overcome in some way because there is just this inherent degradation that lives with us all the time. So the only thing that's left is God's grace to change my life because in my flesh dwells no good thing. And when we look at it that way, of course, what can we conclude? Obedience really doesn't matter. It's all God. And if He favors me for some reason or another, then I'm happy with that. And you should be too, even though you might be going to hell. But remember, God's plan is good. I I speak with my tongue in cheek. I hope you understand. But we get back to this idea of response. It's through the flesh that, that we respond. Stimulation comes to us, whether, whether in the beginning when our, when our head crested the womb or when that slap on our buttocks was given or we felt that first hug or we saw the color in the room, there was something in us that, that stimulated our mind. It stimulated our awareness, maybe just to the barest degree. And from there it began to develop and grow. Pretty soon the, the hug becomes something that we nestled into and we enjoyed the comfort of our mother, or we enjoyed the firm hands of our father, this type of thing. And, it, and it, pretty soon words started coming in through our ears, and our eyes observed activities and how various problems were handled. Our interpersonal relationships and conflicts were resolved. For those of us who were fortunate to be raised in a, in a home where love existed, 
we have stimulation all over the place coming to us through our flesh. And how, is that, how does that come out? What's the, what's the end of that story? Well, if it's just a matter of spirit, then here I am receiving stimulation, but no response is required of me because I'm spirit. I appreciate. I love. But I don't have to do anything about it because I'm spirit. And of course, this is, this is not who we are. We are body, soul, and spirit, or spirit, soul, and body, however you want to put it, whichever one comes first. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. And uh, isn't it interesting that, that when it comes to the crowning day of glory, what is it that, that comes forth? The resurrected body. Isn't that interesting? It makes me think that perhaps even, even in the realm of, of rest, even in the waiting place to be with Christ, to depart and be with Him, that our observation of Him still may be yet limited in that day or in that moment, in that sphere of activity because we're still incomplete. The body needs to be there. Why? Because it receives the stimulation and ultimately the response is carried out. Have you ever thought of somebody carrying out a responsibility just by thinking? I want you to study this. Okay. All right. What next? Well, just want you to study that, that's all. No, usually there's, there is a concrete activity that has to come through the study. Study this so that you can be this or do this, so that you can fulfill this achievement, so that you can go forward. There's something about our body that requires not only receiving stimulation, but exercising it so that others are stimulated in a good way. This is a part of God's way of communicating with us here in this earth. Turn with me, if you will, to the book of um, to the book of John, and I'd like to go to the sixth chapter. Uh, in the uh, the notes that were given to me, the, there's a repetition of this theme: the works of God. Here are the questions that were given to me: uh, Can we be saved without doing the works of God? What are the works of God? Can we be saved by faith alone without doing the works of God? Here, so the idea of the works of God is repeated again and again. I got to wondering now: Where is that found? Where is that found? Well, we have concordances, and that makes up for a faulty memory. And so in the sixth chapter of the book of John, we'll start with verse 25. John 6 and 25. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set His seal on Him. Then they said to Him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? This was the people's reiteration of laboring. Jesus said, Do not labor for the food that perishes. And so they said, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? So the works of God are equivalent to the idea of laboring, according to this account. Now, you remember the background here. There was a, a multitude who followed Jesus, and they came to him. Isn't it interesting in the sixth chapter, in verse 2, it says, a great multitude followed him because they saw his signs, which he performed on those who were diseased. So far, so good. They saw some things. There's the stimulation. And what did they do? They pursued. They went after the master. They wanted to know more about this. And uh, so far, so good. And Jesus 
took care of their need. They were hungry. He fed them all. And uh, wow, what an admission in verse 14. It says those men, when they had seen the sign, more stimulation, when they saw the sign or had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. But the problem here was they, they were looking at the, the bread that perishes. They were laboring for something that would give them life, really, in the long run. And they weren't listening to the Messiah. So on the one hand, they believed that he was the Messiah, but they were believing for the wrong reasons. Why? Because they, they ended their stimulation by just wanting Jesus to be their kind of king. Jesus, do what we want you to do rather than learning from him. Now, let's go back to the passage that we looked at. And I'd like to, to think about how the body enters into this and how works are necessary. All right, Jesus said, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Verse 28, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Now, how were they laboring before? They were laboring by getting in their boats, rowing or setting sail or doing whatever they had to do in order to make those boats navigate across the water to where they, they evidently had heard Jesus had landed. So they pursued Jesus. They were laboring. Why? Because they ate of the loaves and they were filled. They were laboring for mammon in the name of the Lord. Lord, if I just put my hand on the tele television like this man told me, I'll have a thousand bucks in the mail. Laboring for the food that perishes. People will put their hands on the radios and TVs. They will send in their dimes, nickels, and $20 bills in order to have the food that perishes. We do this all the time in life if we're not careful. Oftentimes we vote in the name of the Lord because we want to have MTV our way, that kind of thing. We labor for the food that perishes if we're not careful. But Jesus told us to labor for that which brings everlasting life. Now, He didn't say do not labor. He just said you need to labor a certain way. Well, what would be involved in this laboring, this labor of believing in Jesus? Well, let's go back to verse 26. You seek me, not because you saw the signs. Now, not only did these people get in their boats and make their way to Jesus, but Jesus summarized it this way. You seek me. Therefore, we want to associate labor... This is a part of our labor. We have to seek. He who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So there's labor. There's work involved. Now, when these guys were seeking Jesus, it wasn't like they were sitting back on the other side, back wherever they were in Galilee, or in uh, uh, maybe it was uh, the uh, Gadarenes. I'm not sure where they were at this, at this particular time, but they were somewhere on the shore of Galilee. They didn't just sit back there and start thinking, meditating deeply about finding Jesus. We want to find Jesus. We're seeking Him. Oh, Lord, come into our hearts that we may know you, O oh Lord. You know, all this kind of thing. No, they got out and they did something about it. And even, even for you or for me, if we might pray that the Lord would help us, that he would quicken our minds, that he would enter into our hearts and that type of thing. The only reason we do things like that is because we've already been reading. We've been studying. We, we want to draw closer to the Lord because of what we must do. We're applying ourselves to seeking him. 
These were seeking him, but they were seeking him for the wrong reason. Does this in any way indicate that that faith just without works is sufficient? Labor for the food which perishes. Well, how do we do that? By believing on him whom God has sent. What does that mean? Oh, I believe. Oh, I believe. Help me with my belief. I need to believe. Is that all it is? I mean, you know, that's that's crazy, isn't it? You could sit on a mountain and try to work that out, belief. Well, I'm sure you would have a vision. The light would come into your mind. Would it be God's light or would it just simply be the force of, of the, the chemistry in our brain producing stuff because we've blown away our responsibilities? We're having a spiritual meltdown because we're not engaging with following Jesus. The whole being has to be put together in it. It isn't just spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. The whole being has to come close to the Messiah. Let's take a a brief look at Abraham. If you'll turn with me to the 15th chapter of the book of of Genesis. Excuse me. Genesis chapter 15. Beginning in verse 1. After these things, that is after the the battle with the nations and, and the blessing of Melchizedek. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, it doesn't just say that Abraham, or Abram, as he's known here, was seeking, but we can, we can see that, that he was looking for a child. He was not satisfied, because all he had was this Eliezer of Damascus. This was the closest that he could think of to someone who would be his heir. And that was just not satisfactory. He was looking for something more, and he expressed this to God. Well, in, uh, in verse uh, 4, Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will, become, who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. There was Abraham's faith, or Abram, as he was known at that time. Well, yes, we see the beginning. He had received this message from God, and he trusted that it was true. Don't we do the same thing when we when we read our Bibles and something comes to our attention that we had not considered before, we see it and we trust that it's true. And perhaps it comes to the point where we even see the sense of it. And then our trust even grows deeper because we can see just what it is that God's communicating to us. That's important. But it's not an abstraction. It's not just like a, a beautiful mathematical formula that's written out on the board and we can appreciate the symmetry of it and how it all works out. It rather is something that speaks to our need to respond to God. Now, did, did Abraham, after he had heard these words, did he just go home and praise God and dance around the campfire? Was that all there was to it? No, he went about to, to, to make a baby. It wasn't long. He must have told Sarah about this very shortly after it happened. And Sarah proposed, well, I can't do this, but uh, Hagar can and take her. And so they, they had a baby, of course. But later on, it, it came to be known this isn't this wasn't satisfying to God. No, it has to it has to come through through Sarah. Here in um, Romans the the fourth chapter. Um, well, let's see. Beginning with verse nineteen, it speaks of Abram. 
not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, already dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he, that is what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Here was faith, and what did that faith require? It required the marriage bed of this elderly couple. It required them to have a son. It tells us in the book of uh, Hebrews in the 11th chapter, in verse 11, by faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. So how do we gauge faith in the character of Abraham and in his belief in God, that belief which was accounted to him for righteousness? It wasn't just the idea of Abraham carrying this cherished promise in his heart and walking around with it and saying, this is it. You know, and, and somehow, somehow this baby's going to come into the world. I don't see how it's going to happen, but it'll happen because God promised it would. No, he went about to have a, a child. He and Sarah had a baby together in their old age. So that faith did require works, even in that account. And uh, it, it, it goes on further than that. To me, it's an interesting thing. If we'll turn to the book of James, <coughs> James and the, uh, I believe it's the second chapter. And here it talks about the, the faith of Abraham. And it uses the account of, of Abraham's believing God. Now, here we are in uh, James, the second chapter, verse 23. And it's the idea of, of faith being made perfect through works or being brought to completion. The scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. Well, how did that happen? It happened because he was called upon. I'm not sure how many years later, maybe 20 years later. I, I just can't pin that date when Abraham was called upon to, to offer Isaac. I'm not sure of the time reference there but it was after the weaning of Isaac and uh, it was at a sufficient time where Isaac was old enough and strong enough to go with his father and to prepare for sacrifice. He was of sufficient age to do these things. And God said to Abraham, you need to sacrifice him. And so Abraham went about to do this and he did this with faith. Now, do you remember the promise that God originally gave to Abraham when he was called Abram? Count the, count the stars in the heaven, the multitude, if you can. So shall your seed be, your offspring. So it wasn't just going to be a matter of having a child. It was going to be a matter of having a child who in turn would have children and their children would have children and so on. There was an indication that a great group of people would come forth from this promised blessing through Abraham and Sarah, through his, through his line. This would happen. So it wasn't just a matter of this one. It had to be those who came after. This was called into question when Sarah turned away Ishmael and Hagar. You remember when she sent them away and Abram was greatly disturbed by this. He just didn't want to do this thing. His heart was naturally for his son and for his concubine and he wanted to take care of them, but Sarah wouldn't have it. And finally, he was told, listen to your wife. Your wife's making good sense here. And incidentally, that's a little a little subtext. You know, there are times we need to listen to our wives. You know, it isn't always just Sarah making the wrong advice to Abraham. You know, take Hagar. This is the way the promise will be fulfilled. She, uh, yes, she made a mistake, but she also was shrewd enough and wise enough to see her mistake 
And when her, when the, when the son, the offspring through her and Abraham came in the line, she knew that the two couldn't be together, or else there would be a, a problem of inheritance and inheritance rights, and who's going to carry the family name and that type of a thing. She could see these things. God could see these things too, but Abraham couldn't. But he listened. He, his, the wisdom of his wife prevailed, and uh, he, he let her go because the Lord told him, "In Isaac your seed shall be called." Not through Ishmael, it's through Isaac your seed shall be called. So when Abraham offered his son, he bore this in mind. Not only did God fulfill the promise of giving them a son in their old age, but he had promised that there would be a huge multitude who would come forth from this son. This multitude like the stars in the heaven would come forth through this son, Isaac. And so he was persuaded. All right, I will sacrifice him. But I know God's promises are true. He has satisfied my expectations. And I know He's true. And He'll raise Him from the dead. It's as simple as that. He was persuaded of this. And He went about to, uh, to kill the boy. And of course, he, he passed the test at that point. But I, to me, this is really interesting. Going back to James, the second chapter in verse 23, "...and the Scripture was fulfilled." which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. How many years later? Well, we know it was some 15 years later when God gave Abraham that promise that... um, No, excuse me. No, excuse me. Yes, I think it was 14, maybe 15 years later when Isaac was born. I mean, there was quite a span of time before that part of the promise was fulfilled. And, uh, And then later on, here he's called to sacrifice. And yet... Way back here, he had believed God, and the Bible says it was accounted to him for righteousness. But so many years afterward, it says that was fulfilled. What does that mean? Do you suppose it kind of works like this for you and for me? God, God has expectations for us. This was discussed yesterday. And perhaps we cannot see all the expectations God has in mind for us. He sees our potential better than we see for ourselves. But whatever it might be, we might be striving for this or for that and, and reaching out for this, this goal in our life to, to satisfy what we deem to be some purpose that God has in mind for us. And perhaps He cuts us off way before our time. And we sometimes marvel at this. He was so young. How could, how could the Lord have taken her at such an early age in life? All the prospects have been cut off. Well, who are we to say when the prospect is fulfilled? And when it comes to faith, who are we to say when the time of fulfillment is at hand? When we're born again, there's fulfillment there. And I am persuaded, aren't you, that when that soul comes out of the water of baptism, if you were to die right then and there, you'd be dying with praise in your heart and thanksgiving. There'd be no problem whatsoever. If it happened a week later, no problem whatsoever. In other words, we just don't know, but it has to be constant. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We have to go forward and apply ourselves continually. It isn't just a matter of a snap decision and a snap effect, and that's all there is to it. It's done. It's a done deal. I'm saved. My faith has brought me into life. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter anymore what I do because God has saved me. Not so. Not so. Because we must work the works of God. Uh, one of the questions that was asked was to consider the, the works of God. What are they? I'd like to just be real brief in this. First of all, let's consider the, the works of the law. The law of Moses. And uh, was, that, was that anything to do with faith? 
Was it something that, that was given to be a divorcement from faith, a separation from faith, something that God just wanted to have exclusivized for the sake of His people going through rituals? Well, in the book of uh, Romans, in the ninth chapter of the book, here it tells us in verse 30, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who, have not pursued the right, uh, who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith, but Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law, for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. Now, what were the works of the law? I think a synonym for this goes back to, to verse um, 31, when it's called the law of righteousness. There were prescribed works according to the law of righteousness. It was given by God. In the seventh chapter of the book of Romans, it tells us that the law, that is the law of Moses, was spiritual. It wasn't just some fleshly thing that the you know, hamburger-like, you just go out there and do this and that. You know, it, it was something that required the engagement of the Spirit. They did not seek it by faith. Now, that doesn't mean all of Israel did not seek it by faith. I believe Peter must have sought it by faith. I, must, I believe John and the other disciples, those who followed John the Baptist and listened to him, they must have kept the law by faith. Well, how did they do that? Well, they were persuaded that they were sinners. They were persuaded that they were in need of something better than what they were in life, that they needed the Messiah and whatever the Messiah might give. And they weren't so presumptuous to, to just say, it's either going to be your, our way concerning your blessings to us or the highway. They, they swallowed things that they didn't understand because they still were persuaded that he had the words of life. They wanted to live. I believe the works of the law were a part of that. They engaged in the proper way. They kept the holy days and the sacrifices because they were looking, they were seeking for one who was greater and a day that was better. They were looking forward. But what about those who crucified the Master and the majority who rejected him? Well, their problem was that they were focused on being justified in and of uh, the, the law, the works of the law in and of itself. Just kind of like saying, well, if I just do the sacred thing of eating the bread and drinking the fruit of, of the vine, this, this is enough. This is what God wants. The act itself is sacred. If I go out and kill somebody, that's all right because I've done this sacred thing and it brings me in harmony with God. Now, of course, that's a gross exaggeration, but you can see the point making the work itself to be the valuable thing, regardless of, of how the spirit or the mind is engaged. The works of the law were important, but they had to be done with this thing of seeking, seeking the Lord, seeking to draw nearer to Him and to know Him. And, it, and it, there's a parallel to this. We have the works of God in, that have to do with our sacred assembly. We look at this as a sacred time from the standpoint that that it is a time when we, we, we endeavor to edify one another and we, we are called upon to focus on things that God has given us to consider with regard to Jesus' sacrifice and, and all of this type of thing. It's a time for edification and a very important thing. And there are certain prescribed things that the Bible shows. We sing, we read, we study together, we eat the Lord's Supper. We, uh, we speak of these things to one another. We exhort and edify one another. So this is a part of our assembly, and these are works of God. But what about later on? I, I need to get to my job at the gas station, and uh, it's time to, to, to take somebody's money, or, or maybe in the old days when you actually went out and serviced a car by putting a nozzle in the tank and washing the windshield and all that. Those were the good old days, incidentally. But, uh, but be that as it may, 
Is that somehow not the works of God? No, this is my secular job. It's not the works of God. It has no bearing on anything. I'm just doing it because I have to eat. Well, is there such a thing as being a good gas station attendant? One who's honest. One who's cheerful. One who reflects the glory of God and and is neighborly, even to, to people who aren't so neighborly, that knows how to sow seeds, not because of any presumption. I've got a Christian badge on my lapel, and that makes me sanctified. You know, no, it's it's a matter of, of being able to uh, to to touch other people through this, the humility of sincerity in the Lord of, of being alive in Christ, and that in turn is a work of God, isn't it? Being a father, being a mother, that's an important work of God. When we are in Christ, there are so many things that we engage in to keep body and soul together and to take care of our families, but these all are a part of God's works because. We read the value of what we are doing in these things through Jesus Christ. Christ is glorified in every facet of our lives as children of God. And if, if we don't have faith, then of course it becomes meaningless. It just becomes sort of a, an exercise of, of trying to be a neighbor. But, you know, if I don't make it, that's okay. I still have TV. I can, I can blow my mind away in a movie and forget all about the conflict. And... This is the way sometimes conflicts are handled, you know, because Christ is, we just don't quite believe that there's a victory there. Going back to the, to the opening thing about uh, what do you want to be free from, and uh, my thought was responsibility. Bad boy. But what I really was wanting to get at and what I really learned, I think, through that is, no, what I want to be free from is the, is the burden of responsibility. You know, responsibility is what makes us alive it, it gives us our moments of joy, moments of triumph, if you want to call it that, and it also has its sorrows and it has its headaches, moments of, of grief. There, there's a whole mixed bag. But Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus doesn't want us to carry a heavy burden, a crushing burden in our responsibility. The responsibilities of the cross are, are not destructive. They will not ruin our lives. There may be moments of of pain. There may be times of of internal discomfort and physical discomfort. But in turn, they generate a foundation of joy, of peace, a sense of of confidence (coughs) that, that nothing else can give in this world. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence in the one who's taking care of us. The one who's our yoke fellow. And this is the work of faith. And, and we can't live without it. I just can't help myself. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, I, I think what it means is I don't, have to, I don't have to declare before you or show anybody else that I've been a sinner. I don't have to make that public recognition at all. I mean, I've already been saved, and it doesn't make any difference what you think. The Lord has had mercy on me. And so I'm giving my life to the Lord because I've been saved. It just doesn't work, does it? The responsibility that we have is acknowledging the truth of our need for God. When we, when we are converted, you know when a, when a soul is baptized for the remission of sins like those souls did on the day of Pentecost, do you remember how they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They were completely aware that Jesus was the Messiah and that He died for them, but they were not comforted in those thoughts. And Peter didn't assuage those thoughts by saying, Well, you've already reached the right conclusion. Praise God. Go home and celebrate. He didn't say that. He said, Repent 
and be baptized. You've got something to do. You've got something to apply yourself. You've been stimulated by words. You've been convicted by those words. Now it's time to act. And so when they came forward to be baptized, they did not come forward as souls who were saved. They came forward as souls who were looking for salvation. They didn't think so much of themselves as to say, well, I don't need to look for you to look at me as a sinner. You know, God has already seen that and He's taken care of me. So it doesn't make any difference what you think. No, those souls who came forward were brave enough to walk openly. I'm in need of life. I'm in need of the light. The Gentiles had the same thing laid on them. You remember when Peter went to the household of Cornelius, he and six other Jewish brethren, they went there. And while he was speaking, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. Peter didn't say, praise God, the Gentiles are saved. No, he commanded them. He commanded them, the Bible says, to be baptized. And so they were commanded. It takes faith to receive a command. Blessed are they who do His commandments. It takes faith to do that. You know, when a, when a soul is, is uh, sinking out in the water, it's the old analogy, and uh, the life preserver is thrown out and, and, it, and it lands somewhere off to the side and the soul is so caught up in, in their drowning that they don't see it. And the one who's throwing the life preserver calls out the command. It's to your right. Turn to your right. Turn to your right and reach out for that thing. Now, get it. You know, it isn't a matter of, well, please, uh, come on. You know, look the other way. There it is over there. I had this request. You know, I've gone out to all this work to see to it that you're not going to drown and you're just floundering out there in the water. No, the command really makes sense. And it's not, and it's not given from an imperious standpoint, an arbitrary command. Do it because I say so. But rather, it's done out of love. I want you to live. Do this. When a mother sees her child in danger and they yell a command with the greatest force of imperative in that, in that verb, it's done with love. And so it is with the Lord. He's given us commands. commands. Now, we are not in the position of being imperious. And uh, when we repeat the command by the Bible that you repent and be baptized... It's, it's not done that you might satisfy my will in, in obeying me, but rather that you might work the works of God because it, it's, it's generated from God, from what's written in the Bible. And you can see that for yourself. And your response is not to me or to any brother or sister in this congregation or wherever you might be where your determination is made that you want to give your life to the Lord. Your response is to the Lord and you're looking to a brother or sister to, to help you to facilitate the circumstances so that you can be fulfilled, so that you can do this thing that the Lord has commanded of you. That your repentance may not just be a matter of, of internal remorse, but that your return, which is a part of repentance, your return to the Lord may be completed upon your faithful immersion into the name of Jesus. If this is your desire, please let it be known as we stand and sing.